As the band's coming down, beloved, I want you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12 this morning. Um, that's a familiar refrain. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, isn't it? Get used to it. You're going to hear it a lot in the next few weeks. Let's stand together. And uh, I want us to read. We're going to start in verse 1 here, and we'll read through uh, to verse 10. And then we're going to dig into this text that we're going to look at this morning, specifically this singular command from Paul. Let's look at it. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Let's pray together. You be seated. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for the great grace by which you have made us your own. Through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, making our dead hearts to live and resurrecting our dead souls, giving us repentance, giving us faith to believe in Christ and sealing us into the family of the living God. And we're also thankful, Lord God, that salvation leads to to sanctification. It leads to real change and transformation in our lives. Father, you, by your grace, work to make us more and more into the image of your beloved Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of the means that you use, Lord, is your word. The commandments that Christ spoke and that the apostles gave on your behalf. These words that we hear, Lord God, and that must have purchase in our souls. These words that we hear that must create within us obedience to your commands. And Father, we've got no power to obey your commands on our own. That strength, that ability comes by your Spirit. And so I'm praying this morning, Father God, that you would grant us the grace and the strength that we need as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ to walk as Christ walked, to act as Christ acted, and to love as Christ loved. To love as Christ loved. 
Father, I pray that you would meet us during this time, that you would open up our hearts, that, Father God, you'd open up our minds to understand the expanse of this command that you've given to us. And I pray, Father God, that you would fill me with your spirit so that I can speak your words in a way that brings glory and honor to you, that is faithful, that is accurate. Lord God, so that none of us can have excuse. So that all of us who are in Christ are faced with this command to love one another. And Father, that we would do it without exception and without excuse. So come and meet with us and open up your word and speak to our souls, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, beloved, the more I study Romans, the more I think to myself, what a wonderful and powerful epistle this is, right? I mean, as I'm reading it, as I'm studying it, you know, I'm just amazed. I'm amazed at the wonder of this book. This is such an incredible book. It really is. Paul writes this weighty epistle, right, to his beloved brothers and sisters in Rome and and to us, right? And his intention is to clearly explain the gospel and to focus our minds and our hearts on this great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, how we are justified by grace through faith and not by human works, how we are being sanctified and transformed daily into the image of our Savior and how one day... How one day we will be fully glorified in the presence of God for all eternity. What a day that will be. Amen. Right? But in this 12th chapter, Paul is urging us in in light of the great mercies that we've received in God, the great mercies of the gospel, he is is urging us to live a life right now in, in, in this flesh, a life that is worthy of our calling, right? And he tells us, for instance, to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God, that we're to separate from this fallen world and be transformed by Christ, into Christ's likeness through the renewing of our minds. And, and we're to use our divinely granted gifts to edify and strengthen and uplift the church, right? Then, as we've seen, he goes on to explain... What are the genuine, the marks of a genuine Christian? What are the marks of someone who's truly in Christ? What, what does someone who's truly been saved by God's grace, who really is, you know, believing and trusting in Christ alone, who really has been saved, what does his life look like? What does her life look like? What characteristics are evident in those people's lives, right? And he's telling us this, he's giving us this, this picture of, of, of the characteristics that should identify us as the people of God so that we might examine ourselves and make sure we're in the faith, right? Right? You and I both know there are a lot of people who claim allegiance to Christ whose lives look nothing like Christ, correct? And so what we must conclude from Scripture is, is that if you claim to, to believe in Christ and your life looks nothing like Christ, then your faith is spurious, it's empty, it's in vain, right? But if you're really in Christ, then there are certain characteristics that are going to be true of you. Genuine marks, right? And, and these are marks that require of us real meditation, deep thought in consideration, uh, 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 an, an earnest searching of the Scriptures so that we understand them and pursue them rightly. 
Now, why am I telling you that? Here's why. Some people have been asking me, like, man, we're really going one sentence at a time? Yes, we are. One sentence at a time. Why? I'll tell you why. Because it's really easy to read over all these sentences very quickly and convince yourself that it's true of you when in reality it may not be. It's really easy to just skip over these and, and check them off in your mind like, oh yeah, I got that one and I got that one and I got that one. Oh, look at me, I'm perfect. When in reality, there are some areas of serious growth that each of us need to pursue. There's not a single one of us that after reading verses 9 through 21 should be able to say, I have got all that and more, all that in a bag of chips. I am good to go. Instead, we ought to look at that and go, man, there's some areas where I need to grow. There are some areas where, you know what, man, I really, I really need to humble myself and stop acting like I've got it all together and admit, man, I'm weak right there. Right? Remember what Paul's told us. First, he says we're supposed to have a genuine love for God. That we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, right? And then hand in hand with that, if we really love God, we need to abhor, abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. We need to hate what God hates and love what God loves, right? And here this morning, Paul turns his attention to our relationships with one another. To how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. And he tells us, look at it again, that we are to love one another with brotherly affection love one another with brotherly affection now i want to just say this i want us to remember that this isn't paul's opinion okay this isn't paul like sitting around like making a little diagram of what he thinks the perfect christian looks like this is the word of god it is the expectation of almighty god and the expectation of Almighty God is that we would love one another with a brotherly affection. Now, I want us to understand what that means. And to understand it, we need to get into the Greek, okay? We don't always do that, but it's important to do it here. Okay, in this, in this phrase, love one another, this sentence, love one another with brotherly affection, Paul is actually using two different words in Greek to describe this love, okay? The first one that is translated here as love, the first word that's translated as love is the word philostorgos. Philostorgos, okay? What does that mean? Philostorgos describes the natural affection or the, 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 the love that should that, that one should have for a member of his or her immediate family, okay? It describes, like, just the natural affection that ought to be a part of any, you know, non-dysfunctional family. <laughs> I know, we're not very familiar with non-dysfunctional families anymore, are we? Right? But it's a love, and I want you to write this down. It's a love that is characterized or marked by, by these, these kinds of things, by devotion, to one another by loyalty by constancy a love that is marked by commitment and allegiance a love that's marked by faithfulness and warmth and affection in other words this isn't just this cold love of action this cold love, I'll do what's right because it's right, but I really couldn't care less about you. Right? It's not the, quote, love of toleration. 
It's not the, the quote, love of just putting up with so-and-so. Or because we're members of the same church, I'll nod at them, but because I don't like them, I'll avoid them as much as I possibly can. It's a love of real commitment and closeness and devotion and loyalty. Warmth, right? And then the second word that's translated here as brotherly affection is the word Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. You're familiar with that. Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, city of brotherly love. Not quite. Go visit sometime. I'm from Pennsylvania, right? But the idea of that word brotherly affection is this, is that it narrows for us the scope of which Paul is speaking here. It is true, beloved, that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. But what is in view here is not our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors. It's not people in the world. It's not just people in general. What is in view here is love and affection that is directed toward our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? Yes, we are to love our neighbors. But that is not at all what Paul has in focus here. What he's got in focus here is this. Hey, look. In the church, in the people of God, you need to be marked. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're truly a Christian, he's saying, you need to be marked by a wholehearted, sincere, devoted, loyal, constant, committed, faithful, warm, affectionate love for one another, for those who know Christ. This church, our church, you and me, we ought to be marked by a love for one another that is evident. A love that sticks through thick and thin. A love that's, that's, that's not up and down. That's not variable. A love that's persistent and that's abiding. That's steadfast. That's resolute. One that is loyal and faithful and dependable. One that's warm and welcoming. We should be welcoming of one another. Generous, kind to one another. In fact, the idea is we're to deal with each other in an atmosphere of love and of tender affection. And we should be a family here. And that it ought to be, this love for one another ought to be a hallmark of every single one of us who names the name of Christ. And this isn't the only place that Paul talks about this. For example, over in Ephesians, when, when Paul is talking about, talking to the church about walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling, he commands us, To live with one another, he says in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. With all humility towards one another and gentleness toward one another. With patience, right? Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Some key words there, right? Humility, right? Counting one another better than ourselves gentleness, meekness, tenderness, right? Patience. That's not the idea of like patiently waiting for something that you ordered from Amazon. It's the idea of long-suffering with someone. Long-suffering with somebody. Bearing with one another, eager, eagerly bearing in, I guess, to maintain the, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He tells us later on in Ephesians chapter 4 to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This all gives scope to that word love, right? Brotherly love. 
In other words, what Paul's getting at is, is that loving, you know, love with brotherly affection provides for us an atmosphere of grace. Don't you like that? Don't you like it when people deal with you in grace? Don't you? It creates an atmosphere where even necessary rebuke and reproof and correction and training in righteousness comes through with a heart of true affection and a desire for your good, right? It creates an atmosphere for where atmosphere where where the default for us is to think the best of one another. To think the best of one another. Where there's an eagerness to to believe the good. And when it becomes clear that someone has sinned, where there's true godly grief over that. And not some inward glee that says, see, I knew they weren't that good a Christian. Creates an atmosphere where there's joy over repentance and restoration and not jealousy. It creates an atmosphere where there's a readiness to do anything to help one another entirely irrespective of self. Where we're all walking in one direction. Where we're all encouraging and pulling for one another. Where, where we actually weep with those who weep in sincerity. And we rejoice with those who rejoice in sincerity. And not sitting there thinking, why doesn't anything good like that ever happen to me? What about me? It's where there creates an atmosphere where there's no contention. And striving against one another. Instead they're striving with one another for holiness. Where grace and where peace reigns. But that's what the church should be like. That's what this church, what the church should be characterized by. People ought to look at the church and say, my, what an incredible family that is. Oh, how they love one another. It is remarkable the way that they care for one another. It's, it's amazing the way they rally the wagons around one another. I've never seen that anywhere else and paul's not the only one that talks about it either peter writes over in first peter chapter 3 verse 8 finally all of you he says have unity of mind and sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind notice what, what peter does there he associates brotherly love with unity of mind doesn't he and being on the same page, you know, with, he, 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 he associates it with expressing sympathy toward one another. With having a tender heart toward one another. With a real humility and counting others more significant than ourselves. Peter says the same thing as Paul. That the body of Christ, there should be such a bond of love and affection that draws us together. That the body of Christ becomes a refuge in this world. That it becomes a refuge in the wilderness of this world. That it becomes a safe haven, a place where there isn't any need to hide and where there's no need to, to pretend and no need to put on a mask and no need to pretend to be more than we are, where there is comfortable, secure closeness with one another that no other relationships in this world can provide. True family, right? In our individualistic age, we, we have really 
done damage to the idea of what the church is. We, we regard the church as a building. We regard the church as a program provider. We regard the church as putting on, you know, its job is put on services and, and church is just a thing that you do. And it's just a, a building or a, a, a group of people that come to hear religious instruction or an event that we attend or a service that we go to. That is the wrong vision of the church. The church is the ecclesia. It's a called out body. A body that is called out from the world unto God as His people. And the church is your family to which you belong. And it's the greatest family in the world. In fact, the church, beloved, the family of God. This brotherly affection. It is absolutely and completely countercultural. It is countercultural. It is at odds with all the worldly forms of love, all the worldly forms of love that we see so often. You know, the worldly forms of love, right? Worldly form, worldly love between people is often superficial, isn't it? Isn't it? It lasts as long as so-and-so satisfies me. As long as they're beautiful to me, I'll love them. But when they cease to be beautiful, I'm out, right? As long as they please me and do everything I want them to do, I'll love them, Right? But when they cease to do everything that I desire from them, then I'm out, right? That's not love. That's using somebody. The worldly forms of love are often selfish and self-oriented. What do I get out of it? Manipulative. Hypocritical. Controlling. You belong to me. Transactional. Aren't they? You make me feel a certain way. I make you feel a certain way. Let's get married. But the love of brotherly affection is entirely different. You know why? Because it requires you dying to yourself. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? It requires you dying to your perceived rights. It it makes you desire to benefit others without any selfish concern. And, And that's because it springs from higher and purer motives. It aims at higher ends. It's got a greater basis. What is that basis for brotherly affection? What is it? What is the basis for brotherly affection? What's the core of it? I'll tell you what it is. It's our relationship with God. It's our, it's our relationship with God. I want you to think about this. Each of us who is in Christ has been born again. True? Born from above, correct? Right? Received a new birth. We've been born of God, right? And we've been brought out of this fallen family of Adam into which we were born. We've been brought out of the, the, the fallen family of Adam by God's great grace and by His enduring love. True? And we've been adopted into his own family. And so now we, all of us, in this room, we're Christians. We all share in the same father, don't we? And, and we all, we all share in the same elder brother who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are all born of the same blood, which is the blood of our Redeemer. We're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. God has taken each of us and placed us in his family. And as such, we are in a family in which each of us is to be motivated and energized by the same faith. True? 
We're to be motivated by the same truth and the same doctrine. We're to be motivated by the same values. We're to share in the same hope of eternal life, right? We share the same Lord and King, the same promises in Christ. We share in the same trials and temptations. We share in the same enemies of the faith. We walk the same path. We share the same hell to shun and heaven to gain. We are indivisibly united to the triune God. And so, therefore, we are indivisibly united to one another. And we must live like it. I mean, if God is my father and God is your father, then what? We're brothers and sisters, right? Right? And what unites us, hear me now, what unites us far exceeds anything that divides us. What unites us far exceeds anything that divides us. Consider how that was a reality among the apostles. Think about this for a second, right? You ever thought about the apostles? I'm not just talking about the disciples. I'm talking about the apostles, right? The 11 and then Paul. Well, I guess Matthias too, if you want to add him in. But, but, but I'm talking about the apostles. Do you remember that? I mean, think about this. These guys were men of disparate backgrounds, weren't they? Some of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. One of them was a terrorist. Simon the Zealot was a terrorist. They're from different cities and families, right? Paul, remember, was kind of late to everything. He, he was a Pharisee. The dude was a persecutor of the church before his conversion. And yet, these guys were united in heart and purpose, weren't they? Think about the early church. It was composed of slaves and, slaves and freedmen. It was composed of Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans. It was composed of businessmen and women and farmers. It was composed of soldiers and civilians, of Greeks and barbarians, of literate and illiterate, and on and on it goes. But what cemented them together was their common faith, their common union, and their common love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the nature of brotherly love among Christians. It's a bond, beloved, that transcends every other bond. The bond that you share with another believer in Christ is greater than any bond on this earth. And those aren't just words or empty sentiment. Not just a fond notion. And it's definitely not hyperbole. It's the truth. That wonderful commentator said, My true kin are those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. They are my brothers and sisters. My calling is to love them like family. For they are family. They, like me, have been born a second time, born into the family of God. They share a common father. We share a common father. We share a common mother, the church. And we share a common brother, Jesus our Lord. Beloved, again, the the bond that we share in Christ with one another is far greater than any bond on this earth. Now, like most true things, it can be counterfeited a little bit. There are counterfeit experiences like this. For instance, you know, there's a kind of belonging, for instance, that you experience when you go... when you're in a packed football stadium with other fans of the same team, right? There's like a unity there. Like, you're all brothers, man. Oh, you're wearing black and gold? I'm wearing black and gold. Let's go, right? 
But it's short-lived, isn't it? And you know how I know that? What takes place in the parking lot when people are trying to leave? There's a bond many times and shared hardship and striving. Sam and I were talking about this, you know, the other night. And we were talking about the context, for instance, of VMI, where he went to school in the Naval Academy, right, where I went. And there's a sense in which you're united to those guys because you've experienced some hardship together. But you know what the truth is? It's passing and it's backward focused. When you get together with those guys, what you have to talk about is what happened, in my case, you know, 33 years ago. Well, actually 36 years ago. Earthly fellowship is based on things that are transient. Politics, social causes, pastimes, shared interests, hobbies, even marriage. All things that are going to end with this life. Even earthly relationships. Hear me when I say this. Even earthly relationships, family and friends and partners eventually come to nothing if they are not rooted in the gospel. Indeed, I would say to you, there should be a greater closeness that we feel with a brother or a sister in Christ than we do with any relative who does not know Christ. And why is that? It's because no matter how much you love somebody who doesn't know Christ, you're alive and they're dead. You're in Christ and they're not. There's an old saying, blood is thicker than water. You've heard it, right? Blood's thicker than water. Do you know that's been taken completely out of context and, and reshaped to make it mean what it doesn't mean? Usually we use that blood's thicker than water to say, man, family, that's closer than any other relationship. That's not the original. That's not the original statement. The original statement is this. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Our true family is the one, the ones to which are the ones to which we belong by the blood of the covenant established by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're together the family of God and that that family has got to be characterized by devotion and by a real love for one another. Hear me now that is qualitatively different, qualitatively deeper, and qualitatively stronger than our love for those outside the body of Christ. It's closer. It's a bond in blood. I'll give you an example. It's not a good one. It's an earthly example. It's not a perfect illustration. But this idea of prioritizing the love you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll I'll give you an illustration. Again, it's an earthly one and it's not a perfect one. But when we lived at Smith Mountain Lake, Jakey was having a problem with one of the kids that was in Sam's grade. He's picking on him. You know, this kid was picking on Jake and and, and just, just really generally just making his life miserable. He's picking on him on the bus, picking on him at school and everything. And so one day... This kid, like, gouged Jake's arms with his fingernails on the bus, okay? Like, right when they were coming home, Jake gets out. His forearm is bleeding, right? And, you know, to put it mildly, I wasn't happy. 
And so I, I, I planned the next day to go to the school at lunchtime and talk to the principal, find out who the kid was, you know, whose parents were, so I could go and talk to his parents. And I was going to do it graciously and kindly. That was my plan. I never got the chance. I never got the chance. The next morning, I'm sitting in my office at the church, and I get a phone call. And my secretary buzzes in and says, it's the principal, and they want to talk to you. I was like, all right. So I pick up the phone, and the principal wanted to talk to me, she said, about Sam's behavior. Seems that Sam went into school that day. And went into the boy's homeroom. He was in a different homeroom than Sam. Went into the boy's homeroom and leaned over his desk and in his best Batman voice said, (laughs) he said, if you mess with my brother again, I'm going to take you out. Right? So the teacher had heard it, sent him to the principal's office. Principal calls me. She's like, I want to know how you think we should handle it. Like it's like she has anything to do with it, right? How should we handle it? I don't know about we. My center, I said, listen, I don't know how you plan to handle it. You need to do whatever you do, whatever you've got to do. You're the principal at the school and everything. But as for me, when my son gets home, I'm going to give him a hug and tell him how proud I am of him for sticking up for his little brother. I said, because, I said, because in my home, we have this saying that goes like this, brothers before others. And it got silent on the phone for just a second. And then she said, oh yeah, Sam said something about that. I can't tell you how pleased I was, right? Now here's the point. Here's the point. That's not a perfect illustration. But that's the idea of the love that we're to have for one another in the body of Christ. That it's brothers and sisters before others. Not to the exclusion of others. I want to make sure I say that. Not to the exclusion of others. But before others. We're to love one another with a deep affection that is qualitatively different than our love for those outside the body of Christ. Because we are family in the truest sense of the word. Amen? Now, I want you to think about this. The entire language of family, the language of family is used in, throughout the entire word of God to describe the church. Over and over, you run into language that is family language. We're, for instance, called the household of faith in Galatians 6.10. We're called the household of God in Ephesians 2.19 and 1 Timothy 3.15 and 1 Peter 4.17. In fact, I would challenge you just do a search of the word brothers. Just the word, the search of the word brothers in the New Testament, man, you'll be shocked. You'll be stunned at how often that word appears. It's so frequent that lots of times we just kind of pass right over it. But beloved, it's the most common term used to describe the relationship of Christians to one another. And in fact, the great bulk of Christian instruction is actually couched in terms of this bedrock relationship. Let me just give you a few examples. For instance, Paul says to the Corinthians, who are having trouble living with one another as family, and who are having divisions and disputes amongst them, he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul appeals 
to them to be unified in their mind and in their heart, in their judgment, in their doctrine, and in and, and, and the, and the truth and in the gospel. And that, that appeal is rooted in the relationship that they have to one another as brothers. When he's dealing with arrogance. And each one thinking they're better than the other. He says in verses, or chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, again, 1 Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He says, hey, think about this for a moment. None of you should be getting over on the other one. Nobody should think you're better than anybody else. Because not many of you are noble at all. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are wise. Come on, brothers. Think about the rock from whence you've been hewn. You've been saved entirely by God's grace and not by anything in you. And so because you've been chosen by God's grace for inclusion into his family, listen, God has chosen everybody else who's been included in that family as well. You don't get to pick your family. God does. So swallow your pride. Act a little more humble toward one another. And realize that you're no better than your brother. Later on when Paul is correcting their spiritual error, calling out their sins of jealousy and strife, he does so by saying, you know, but I, brothers, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. When he addresses it, listen, he's not addressing it as like teacher to pupil, like, listen, idiots, right? Like, you wouldn't receive that from me, would you? Like, if I stood up here on a Sunday and said, now, listen, morons, here's what you need to do, right? That wouldn't go over well, would it? Of course not. He, he stands in this relationship of, of brotherhood, right? And in fact, he speaks to them as a brother who loves them and who's intimately concerned with their spiritual condition. Look, I'm saying this to you because it grieves my heart that you're still acting like infants. Listen, brothers, grow up. Come on, right? He makes a pointed statement of what a title, a term of honor, brother or sister really is. When he says to him in, in chapter 5, I know I'm still in Corinthians, but you know I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole New Testament, but I just want you to get this. He says, I'm now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. When? If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Why does he say that? Why does he say that? It's Here's why. It's because he puts a, a high value on the name of brother. He puts a high value of carry, on carrying that title. He says, don't denigrate the title of brother. It's a meaningful relationship talking about lawsuits never he's upset with me he's like i say this to your shame can it be that there's no one among you who's wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers he's like come on man you guys are brothers are you meaning to tell me you can't resolve your issues you can't resolve your problems you can't get to the bottom of an issue with somebody who's your brother 
The gospel's more powerful than that. Don't embarrass God. Don't embarrass your father by airing your dirty laundry in public. How about you work out the issues within the family like you should? Over in Galatians, talks about the role that we have in ministering to one another. And he says in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He predicates the concern for the repentance and the rescue and the restoration of sinning Christians upon our union to one another's brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't he? Doesn't he? When Paul talks about the, the way that he pursues holiness and Christ-likeness to the Philippians, he sets it in the context of himself as an older brother. He says, you know, brothers, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers, join in imitating me, right? He puts himself forward as a, as the, in the context of himself as an older brother showing the way. His heartfelt brotherly affection for the, Thessalon- for the Thessalonians drives him to say, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, but not in heart, we endeavored to more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. That's how much Paul loved the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. Again, it's not just Paul. and It's all the New Testament writers. James, for instance, establishes our ministry and care for one another on the bond of brotherhood. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? That's not brotherhood. That's not sisterhood. James speaks of our being our brother's keeper. Right? That old question, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are if you're in Christ. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Brotherly love pursues other brothers or sisters that are in sin for the purpose of bringing them back. Paul talks about Brotherly love being the evidence of being born again. He's not the only one. John's going to talk about it in a moment. I'll get to that. But he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Because you have been born again. Not a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and the abiding word of God. And then one more. Just one more. I could go on and on, but I'll just give you one more. It sticks out to me. I was reading through Second Peter and got to this verse, Second Peter 3.15, and it stuck out. Peter is writing and he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our, get this now, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him. Why am I pointing that out? I'll tell you why. Here's why I'm pointing this out. If there would have been any chance for a rivalry 
or some kind of a root of bitterness that would have wrecked the relationship and the unity of the apostles, it would have been between Peter and Paul. Why do I say that? Number one, because Paul, as I mentioned earlier, was late to the party. And yet, he became the most prolific writer of all the apostles, didn't he? He was the latest one. He was the the one that was, you know, chosen last as an apostle. And yet, he became the preeminent one. Not Peter. Not to mention that it was Paul who publicly rebuked Peter for his sin of partiality and hypocrisy while they were in Antioch. He called him out publicly. So here's Peter, referring to Paul as our beloved brother. And there's absolutely no hint of strife between them at all. They were brothers in Christ, and that trumped everything else. I can go on and on. But it's vital for us to see. What I want us to see is the language of family, the language of spiritual brother and sisterhood, the language of brotherly love and affection that permeates the Word of God. We are a family. In our church, you and me must be characterized by a real, vibrant, familial, brotherly love, a genuine love for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I want you to be honest. Are you endeavoring to love everybody in this body in this way? Are you really trying to love your brothers and sisters in Christ in this way? I mean, I think if we just stop for a moment, we got to sit back and go, you know what? Probably not. Probably not as much as I should. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? I'm not saying do you love your little group. We've all got our own little group, right? Right? People that are, y'all are like really quiet this morning. It's tough, isn't it? Y'all are very quiet this morning. We've all got our own little group, yes? And generally, that group is around people that either we work with, or that we do ministry with, or that's about our age and whatever, our, 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 our similarity and station in life. But I want you to notice that this command is not love those in your station of life with brotherly love, is it? It's not love your little group with brotherly love. It's love one another. I may have absolutely nothing in common with you except Jesus Christ. And that ought to be enough. That ought to be enough. If there are people that you see in church all the time and you don't know what their name is, what's wrong with you? What's your problem? What's your major malfunction? Seriously, what's wrong with you that you can't walk over to somebody and say, hi, my name is so-and-so. What's your name? There's not like, you know, I remember when you were a little kid and you'd lay in your bed and it was like, the floor's made of lava and you can't touch the floor. Some of you act like, the middle aisle's made of lava and I can't cross. If there are people that you don't, you don't know anything about, maybe you ought to talk to them. You might actually find that you like them. They're not as goofy as they look. 
Do we love one another like we ought to? Here's the deal. If you want to know that, examine yourself against Christ because the model for love is the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Isn't it? We emphasize a great deal, rightly so, right, that Christ is prophet, priest, and king, that he's Lord and Savior, that he's redeemer and mediator and shepherd and advocate. But we often forget, in light of those loftier titles, his place as elder brother. Right, the writer of Hebrews talks about it in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, when he says, For he who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source, God the Father. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Earlier in this epistle, Romans eight twenty nine, Paul tells us, For those whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many, what? Brothers. God's very purpose is an electing love of us and, and his predestination of us is that Christ would be the firstborn. He'd be the, the first in rank. He would be the elder brother of a bunch of, of, of spiritual siblings, right? And so as the one who stands at the head of a new and redeemed community of men and women, the Lord Jesus Christ, right, shows us how we're to love one another, right? Think about it with me. Our elder brother has loved us and given himself for us, right? Laid down his life for us, for our highest good, for our spiritual good. And that in return shows us how we ought to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. First, we got to view one another as one for whom Christ died, right? We got to see one another. Look, you matter. You matter to me because Christ died for you. You matter to me because just like Christ died for me, he died for you. Christ laid down his life for his brethren, right? And so we too are to lay down our lives for one another. He's patiently born with us, continues to patiently bear with us. And so we too are to bear with one another in love. He died to forgive us, right? He died to forgive us for our sins. And so we too are to do what? To forgive one another as we've been forgiven. He, he continues to build us up in the faith. And so we too are to build one another up in the faith. I'm, I'm to be actively invested in building you up. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And so we too are to intercede for one another. He's given us every provision for life now and in the age to come. And so we too are to share what we have in our lives with one another now and for all of eternity. And I want to, I want us to understand this, beloved. Why are we spending so much time talking about brotherly love? Here's why. It's not optional. It's not up for debate. Debate. It's not to be partial. Brotherly love is not to be used to manipulate. Brotherly love is not to be used to coerce. Brotherly love, true brotherly love, means we act like Christ toward one another. And if we don't have this brotherly love, if we don't have this brotherly love, Either we are in major rebellion against God and He will ensure that we are miserable until we repent. 
or we're not saved at all. And whenever I say like blanket statements like that, people get really nervous. If you don't have this love, if you don't have love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you don't have that, then you're not saved. And they think, that is so harsh. Well, maybe you'll, some of you will take it better from the apostle of love. John himself, who pulls no punches at all. When he says, 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This apostle of love is also the guy that says that those who do not love the brethren are in darkness. He's not talking about they're in a room without the light on. He's talking about they're in spiritual darkness. He also goes on to say that everybody who loves God loves those that are born of God. Right? Those statements are as plain as it gets. Furthermore, John records the Lord Jesus as saying that love is essential to the gospel. Serving as a witness to the world of the power of the gospel. When he said, John 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So my question, is the gospel, the power of the gospel evident in our church? Is it evident? Is it real? Do people come into this body and say, yes, Christ is alive here. Yes, the gospel is real here. There is no doubt. Because these people love one another. I'm going to say this again, beloved. The world is is filled with superficial, selfish, and transactional love. What it needs to see is real and steadfast and loyal and sacrificial and enduring love. Real love. In fact, we know instinctually that we ought to love one another, don't we? If you're in Christ, you know you're supposed to love your brother or your sister in Christ, don't you? Don't you? You do. You know why I say that? I say that because Paul said to the Thessalonians, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Nobody needs to teach you. God teaches you. You know it's right to love the family of God. So do it. Do it. Love one another. Pour out your life for one another. Lay down your rights for one another. Serve one another with gladness. Gladly forgive one another. Don't lord it over one another. You need to love each other. Because brotherly love is a gift of grace from God. You understand? I want you to think about the world you live in. The world we live in. It's a pretty hostile world, isn't it? It's getting more hostile, isn't it? If you're a Christian, this world doesn't like you much, does it? Don't expect it to get better. No matter what laws we pass, no matter what bills go through for religious liberty, I'm telling you right now, I'm promising you this. If you're truly in Christ, if you're a true Christian, people aren't all all of a sudden going to open their arms wide and be like, oh, we love you guys. No. 
Jesus said, if the world hates you, it hated me first. We live in a world that increasingly hates us. And yet this, this calling to love one another, it's a command that comes with a promise. It's a command that comes with great blessing. Let me explain what I mean by that. When Jesus was talking with his disciples after his encounter with the rich young ruler, right? When he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions, you know. And so Peter says to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, um, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. And the idea there is like, we've left everything. What do we get out of it? Right? Graciously, Jesus answers him in this way. He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers, who house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, here's the connection. What's Paul, what's, what's Jesus saying to Peter here and to all the other disciples? He's saying in effect this, look, because you're a follower of me, because you have been redeemed by me, because you're mine, because you belong to me, it may, me, might mean that you will be rejected by your family. In fact, for those guys who were Jews, it was very great likelihood. It may mean that you're going to be rejected by your family. You might lose your husband or your wife. Your children might reject you. Your relatives might decide they don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. But here's the promise of my grace. That in the family of God, you're going to get brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers more than you can count. Even in the midst of your persecution, it's all going to be made up to you. It's going to be made up to you now and it's going to be made up to you in eternity. You won't lose anything because you will gain a family that you couldn't imagine. Now that's a great promise and especially in a world that's increasingly hostile to Christians, isn't it? It doesn't matter how close you are with a family member who doesn't know Christ. You might be able to walk on the way together for a while, but eventually there's going to come that, 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 that V in the road where you must go to the right and they go to the left. It's just the way it is. And so you need to find your fellowship with the ones that are walking the narrow path. J.C. Ryle says this promise, he says to, to all who make sacrifices on account of the gospel, Jesus promises a hundredfold now in this time. They shall not only have pardon and glory in the world to come, they shall have even here upon this earth hopes and joys and sensible comforts that make up for everything that they lose. They shall find in the communion of the saints new friends, new relations, new companions, more loving, faithful, and valuable than any they had before their conversion. Their introduction to the family of God shall be an abundant recompense for exclusion from the society of the world. This may sound startling and incredible to many ears, but thousands have found by experience that it is true. So then, what do we do? Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Paul is telling us to make this loving community a reality right here. 
by loving each other with brotherly affection. He's not telling us just to be polite to one another. We should do that, but that's not enough. He's not telling us to just put up with one another. Our relationship must be, must be far deeper than that. Neither is he telling us, though, to love every single person the exact same way. Even in natural families, right? We don't love each member of our family in the exact same way. But we must truly love one another sincerely and purposefully and with effort and be devoted to one another and love all the children of God no matter who they are. So, brotherly love is a virtue to be cultivated. How do we do it? How do we cultivate brotherly love here? How do we do it? Well, the first thing I'll say is this is that the root of brotherly love and affection is, first of all, the grace and the love of God. Okay? The root of brotherly love and affection is the grace and the love of God. Jerry Bridges wisely, perfectly, accurately observes this. He says, here's a spiritual principle for you. We cannot exercise brotherly love unless we are experiencing grace. You cannot truly love others unless you are convinced that God's love for you is unconditional, that it's based solely on the merit of Christ and not on your performance. John said, we love because he first loved us. So our love, either to God or to others, can only be a response to his love for us. Here's what he's saying. Unless you're truly a Christian, there's no way that you can love somebody like this. Unless you know yourself to be loved by God, redeemed by God, you know, treasured by God, unless you know that your relationship with God is not tenuous, but it is firmly established by His steadfast and unchanging love, you won't be able to love other people. Because you won't be able to die to yourself. And you won't be able to lay down your life. And you won't be able to be humble. And you won't be able to be broken. You won't be able to love because you're not sure you're loved. But when you know that you're truly loved by God, then, then you can give your life away to your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's really where it begins. Do you know yourself to be loved by God? If you're in Christ and you do, then this is what we do. First, we got to remember. We got to remember as we cultivate this love for one another in our hearts, we got to remember, first of all, that our brothers and sisters in Christ are loved by God no matter how imperfect they may be. I'm going to say that again. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are loved by God no matter how imperfect they may be. And might I add, just like you. Right? They're loved no matter how imperfect they are, just like you are in all of your imperfections. And so therefore, together, you are the children of God. Jesus shed his blood for them as much as for you, and they're forgiven as much as you are. They are loved by God, and you are commanded to love them too. Now, why am I making this point? Here's what this keeps us from doing. From expecting a certain level of maturity or performance before I love that person. Right? Imagine if that was what it was like in your home. Imagine if when your child was born, rather than spitting up and pooping in his pants and breaking things when he first learns how to walk and all that other stuff. Imagine if when your child was born, you were like, I'm going to love this kid eventually. When he gets over all this stuff. When he reaches a certain level of maturity, then I will love my kid, but not until then. Right? 
Now, that's ludicrous, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, that's stupid. Like, nobody does. I mean, if you do that, you got a problem, right? Like, you're lacking in the natural love that you're supposed to have for your, for your children, right? Nobody does that. Well, likewise, listen, we don't do that to people that are, that are in Christ. You know, everybody in Christ is not equally sanctified. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Like, some are babies. Some actually remain babies longer than others, Right? Some are adolescents. I'm not sure if they're better or worse than the babies, right? And then there's some that are more mature. But here's the point. We don't, we don't, you know, ration our love based upon how pleasing one Christian or another is to us. Because all are children of the living God. Even the ones that bug you. Second, Look for evidences of grace in one another's life. We need to be looking for evidences of grace in one another's lives. When we see the hand of, of God in, in somebody else's life, when, he, when we focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in one another, that's when we're drawn to one another in greater and greater degree, isn't it? When you begin to, you identify it, like, you know, you see the grace that God is working in somebody's life and you're drawn to them in that way. There's no place for sinfully exalting ourselves over somebody else. That's a denial of grace. Instead, we ought to seek to celebrate God's grace in one another. And, and what we now see, we've got to remember that what we now see when we look at one another is far from what we will see when we behold each other in glory. But love each other like we are in glory. Third thing is pray. Two things about that. One, pray that God would enlarge your heart to love each other. If you find it hard to love somebody, pray that God would change your heart. Pray that He would create new affections for them or reawaken ones that have been dormant. But pray that God would change your heart toward one another. Right? And then pray for one another. Pray for one another. Actually invest in intercessory prayer for other people in this body. If somebody's bugging you intercede with God for them. And you know what happens? The more that you pray for somebody, the more you're drawn to that person. In fact, William Law said, there's nothing that makes us love a man so much as praying for him. Because when we pray for somebody, when we earnestly intercede for somebody, we are invested in them. So do it. Fourth, Seek to be obedient to this command. What I mean by that is, is look, don't wait for the emotion to strike you. It's just like we talked about when, when Scripture teaches us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not that we're supposed to sit around in a state of suspended Christian animation until we feel that love for God overtake us. We're not to hate good and love evil when the fancy strikes us. And neither are we to love one another with brotherly affection only when the feeling hits. Instead, beloved, act in loving and affectionate ways toward one another. Act in loving ways toward each other. And you know what happens? The feeling comes. And then last, let's remind ourselves that Christian love ought to be a growing thing, right? And let's devote ourselves 
to loving people and pursuing greater and greater degrees of love and brotherly affection toward one another. I want you to hear me when I say this. Closeness to one another, the closeness like we should have, does not come naturally in an arm's length, individualistic, social media driven society. I remember when my kids were starting to date. Well, the older ones. I remember, like, they would text one another nonstop. First of all, dude, who wants to do that? You know what I mean? Like, I I love my wife, but I don't want to talk to her every single minute of the day. All y'all are looking at me like, are you kidding? He just said that. Come on, be honest, brothers. Like, don't you want to be, if you're doing something, don't you want to be able to get it done without, right? I mean, seriously, right? Like, I mean, there are times you want to be together, but then there are times when, you know, work needs to get done. I remember when they started dating, like, they were like on each, it was like, are you serious? Like, this girl just presses a button and it buzzes and you're like, what is wrong with you, man? Right? But what that creates is a false intimacy. I want you to hear me when I say that. What that creates is a false intimacy. When we are all immediately available to one another through text, it creates a false intimacy. When the communication that we do is through the typed word rather than face-to-face, when you can see one another facially and talk to one another. You know, back in my day, the Stone Age... You actually had to ask a girl out face to face. There's a little risk there. A little risk of rejection. A little risk of, you know, you're putting yourself out there, man. It takes a little something, right? Nowadays, it's like, hey, do you want to go hang out? What does that even mean? Hang out. No. Okay, yeah, me neither. That's cool. Send. Right? Look, it takes effort to be close to one another. We need to spend more time speaking face-to-face than texting one another, right? We need to spend more time actually, you know, investing in one another's lives rather than virtue signaling. We need to spend more time actually with one another. Let us devote ourselves to meaningful, personal selfless expressions of love and brotherly affection to one another. Let's be different than the world. You know what I realize? And I'm studying this for this sermon. I can love you better. I can love you more. And you can love me better and more. And you can love one another better and more. We can love each other better and more than we do right now. Isn't that true? So let's do it. I'll close with these words from Nick Batsing, this observation. He said this, What a difference it would make if we would learn to view one another through the lens of our union with our glorified elder brother. How many arguments would we avoid if we acted in accord with these truths? How much sinful ambition would we put at bay if we trained ourselves to think this way about one another? How much love and care would we manifest among those in the body if we consistently sought to apply this principle to all of our interactions with all other believers? How much patience and deference would stronger brothers show to weaker brothers 
if we imbibe this principle. How much mutual prayer would we offer to God for one another if we adopted this mindset? How often would we ask for and extend forgiveness to one another if we truly believed these things? My answer to that is, I don't know. But I'd sure like to find out. How about y'all? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when we think of your immense love for us, the way, Lord God, that you have demonstrated your love and that you gave your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins, Lord, you give us a picture, a clear one, of what brotherly love ought to look like among the children of God. Of what investment in one another's lives should really look like. Lord Jesus, you did not remain in heaven far, far off. You did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You invaded human existence. You stepped out of heaven and you, you came into this earth steeped in sin. You weren't repulsed by us. You did not give us what we deserved. You did not count yourself greater than our need. But you humbled yourself and you became obedient to the point of death upon a cross. You became a servant for our sake. And you loved us with a powerful, with a real, with a loyal, devoted, unchanging, strong, selfless, sacrificial love. And you brought us out of darkness and into spiritual light. And you expect us to love one another in the same way that you have loved us. And you give us the grace that we need in order to do it. And so, Lord, we have no excuse for not loving one another like we should. So I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to repent regarding certain individuals that for whom and because of whom we need to repent because we haven't loved them like we should. I pray that you would help us, Father, to repent of our unwillingness to get outside of our comfort zone. I pray, Father, that you would lead us to repent of the ways in which our love has been fickle and manipulative and superficial, Lord, and transactional like the love of this world and father that we might love one another with a love that is real and pure and unchanging so i pray that you'd bring repentance to our hearts today and i pray lord god that we would see this great promise this beauty of loving one another with a brotherly affection that that would just be so attractive to us so that we'd embrace 
Father, that, that, that opportunity, we would see it as an opportunity and we'd, we'd be grateful for it. And I pray, Lord God, that you would use this commandment to examine our hearts. Father, there are some, perhaps in this building, that say they love Christ and have no love for the people of God. No true love. No brotherly affection. Perhaps they do what they do out of duty. Or they do what they do out of a desire to protect reputation. But Lord, they don't do it out of a desire to, to truly love as they've been loved by you. And it's because they're foreign to the love of Christ. They don't know the truth of the gospel. They yet believe that they, are sa- they can save themselves by their own works of their human flesh. When in reality, it's only the work of Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection that, in which we can be saved. And so I pray for those people today that perhaps have been falsely like making excuses for the reasons why each one of these marks perhaps is not true of them rather than coming to the realization that the reason they're not true is because they're not truly in Christ and that you'd bring them to Christ today. In everything, I pray that you'd help us to prepare our hearts, Lord God, to prepare our hearts for partaking in this Lord's Supper the very emblems of the love of Christ, his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So Lord, during this time of just response, I pray, Lord God, you'd move every heart to respond in the way that it should. I pray that you would move us, especially as a body, to respond in the way that we should so that this church might be a very picture the very picture of brotherly love with brotherly affection and that it might be a refuge, an oasis in the midst of this world for all of your people. To you be all glory and praise. I I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.